0: lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use... 1 John 1.9, if necessary, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study and focus on the Word of God. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to let our thinking be challenged and that we might be taught the absolute truth from your word. Father, we pray that as we study your word, we might have the courage and the objectivity to see how these things apply to us, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might be able to understand these things and have greater insight into our own thinking and how our own thinking has been uh, influenced both in subtle and not so subtle ways by the cosmic system around us. Uh, we pray that as we study your word, we may be responsive to the challenge of it and transforming our own thinking. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Three weeks ago, we began a study on worldliness, what the Bible calls worldliness, what I call the cosmic system based on the Greek word kosmos, which has been translated. Uh, worldliness. We find this in First John chapter 2, verse 15. This is one of the key passages in Scripture challenging us and teaching us something about the cosmic system. There we read, Do not love the world, that is, the cosmic system, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the cosmic system, then the love for the Father is not in him. And then we're told why. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now we are starting off, we have started off in verse 15 trying to understand this whole concept of the cosmic system. I've emphasized the fact that it has to do with thinking, not actions. Too often, especially in older and in legalistic uh, elements of Christianity, worldliness is expressed in terms of uh, hair or cosmetics or dress or a certain lifestyle, and that may or may not have something to do with with, uh, with worldliness. Worldliness in the Scripture has to do with thought forms, has to do with thinking like Satan thinks, and uh, we developed. Initially, a number of passages that warn us about the dangers of cosmic thinking, how uh, cosmic thinking is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. There There are only two ways of thought. There's human viewpoint, which has many different manifestations, which is just another way of talking about cosmic thinking. And there is divine viewpoint, God's way, based on the absolute truth revealed in Scripture. Now, every generation, every century, every culture, every era has different uh, manifestations of the cosmic system. If you're in 5th century BC Greece, then you were perhaps affected by uh, Aristotelianism or Platonism or Stoicism, Epicureanism. These are just different philosophies, different ways of looking at life, different ways of problem solving, different ways of finding meaning in life, different ways of of learning value systems. And if you grow up in that environment, then you would think within a certain uh, frame of reference. If you grew up in, in, um, as the Apostle Paul did, in a... Jewish home, an Orthodox Jewish home, and you're trained in a rabbinical way of thinking, according to the Pharisees, then you look at life through a certain set of glasses, a certain lens, and, and everything's interpreted within that. And, and whether you're, you're there, whether you're in, in some aboriginal tribe in, in Australia, whether you're Asian, whether you're... Uh, from South Texas, wherever you are, you have a certain cultural mindset that we pick up through education, through teachers, through friends, through family, uh, churches, that, that is not necessarily biblical. Sometimes it's more divorced from the scriptures. Sometimes it's closer to the scriptures. But the Bible calls that cosmic thinking. And uh, it shapes the way we think, the way we problem solve, the way we face life, the way we evaluate things. And the scripture warns us to identify this. And so since each age, each culture has different ways of looking at things, we need to be able to identify that or at least be able to identify some of the marks of our culture. I've used the example of a missionary going into some tribe in Africa that if you're going to go there and try to communicate the gospel, you need to not only learn the language, you also need to learn the culture, the people, how they think so that you can communicate the gospel to them and that take, then take that analogy and apply it to us here in the United States, we're in a culture it's a culture of, of America there are different subcultures there's uh, minority subcultures there are regional subcultures there's all kinds of different ways in which people look at and think about life and ultimate realities but what characterizes our age more than anything else is a concept of postmodernism, and I've began to introduce this last time we want to just look at the high points this is an extremely uh, complex subject to try to cover in just two or three just two or three weeks if you're interested in reading more about this then I would recommend a book called The Death of Truth uh, edited by Dennis McCallum M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M Dennis McCallum and uh, you can get that through uh, any Christian bookstore. Amazon.com has it, uh, but you can find it. And it's a good breakdown, and it's, it's interesting. Once you begin to read about this and see a lot of contemporary examples, all of a sudden it helps us see how, gosh, I've bought into this at one level or another, and I'm using this because we're products of our times. We're all products of our times, products of our culture. And this kind of thinking, worldliness, the Bible says, always pressures the believer. And there's always a a conflict. And it's always seeping in around the edges and affecting the way we think. And it's most appealing to our sin natures. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we started this, I read a quote to you. had it up on the overhead from Aldous Huxley. And the quote goes like this because it challenges the concept of religious belief. And see, what people don't realize is that the core of everything is faith. We've talked about this. I've put the chart on the overhead of the different ways in which we know rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and revelation from God. And I have said that at the core of every system of thought, whether it's Cartesian rationalism, whether it has to do with Kierkegaardian existentialism, our Kantian epistemology, Hegelian idealism, whatever it is, at the very core is faith. And so we see an example of this in this quote from Aldous Huxley, who was sort of Darwin's bulldog. The Huxley family has always promoted Darwinian evolution. Huxley says, I believe firmly that the scientific method, that's a combination of rationalism and empiricism, although slow and never claiming to lead to complete truth, is the only method that gives satisfactory foundations for belief. Now, notice what he's saying is that the only way to have religious belief, that's what he means by belief at the end, the only way to really shore that up and know what's true so you can believe it is through the scientific method, rationalism, empiricism. But notice the first phrase of the quote. He said, I believe. See, before he ever talked about empiricism and rationalism, He made a faith statement. Faith is the core of everything. You know, another example, and and so what's happening today, to, to, to wrap that up, what's happening today is that people are just believing anything and it doesn't have to be rational anymore. That's what postmodern is. Now, that's not everybody. You know, we live in a cu- culture that's a real mix. There's modernists, there's secularists, there's atheists, there's naturalists, there's postmodern, there's all kinds of people out there holding different worldviews. But the one that shapes our, our culture more than anything it, right now is postmodernism. This was evident in a book review I saw in the New York Times book review a couple of weeks ago. It is a review of a book called The Reckless Mind by Mark Lilla. And it's reviewed by Daniel Mahoney, who teaches political science at Assumption College. Now, both of these guys have very positive things to say, but in the introduction, Mahoney talks about how uh, he, he Mahoney reminds us of the horrors of September 11th, and the fact that when those planes crashed into the World Trade Center, they just woke everybody up to the real presence of evil in the world. And then he says, the one exception is the university. The one exception is the academy, the realm of so-called scholarly intellectuals. It says, this is the one exception where prominent voices blame America first and demand sympathy for the other, whatever the other is. The supposed victim of rapacious rationalism and imperialism. Notice how it links a philosophical way of thinking, rationalism, with, action, imperialism. Says the loathing of Western intellectuals for the West itself is one constant of our age. You see, that's what happens in in universities. Now, most of us may never run into some of these people, but their ideas and the books that they write are influencing the the intellectuals in the country and the students in the country, the, the schools, the universities, the colleges, and they crank out the business people, they crank out the politicians, the lawyers, they crank out the educators, the historians of our era, and they have—they're trained by these um, uh, intellectuals at the university to think a certain way. And as it filters its way down through through their from the intellectuals to their students to the people that go out into the real world, then these ideas begin to affect everybody around us, and that's how it how it sifts its way out and how it seeps out into society. And before you know it, we're all thinking this way. The average person in America is either an existentialist or a or postmodern. They've never heard of either one of them. But, but, but they're an example of exactly what, what Kierkegaard or Kant or Hegel was talking about. So just because you don't know the technical terminology doesn't mean you're not influenced by this. Another example of uh, postmodernism and how it is... It runs counter to what we think of as as Christians. It comes from one of the founding thinkers, Martin Heidegger, who was a German philosopher um, and lived at the early part of the 20th century. And he was a defender of Nazi tyranny. In fact, he was involved with the Nazi party. And he saw in National Socialism, that's the technical term for the Nazis, an inner truth and greatness... They could free the Western world from its enslavement to rationalism. See, it's an attack on reason. It's a reaction to the rationalism and empiricism of the Enlightenment. And so they blame everything on on reason and on empiricism and on science. And if we just got away from that, then uh, then we could somehow find order and meaning in life. Now. When I, when I set that up, that everything in, in history and the flow of ideas tends to react one thing against another. And there are problems with modernism that we would agree with. When the postmodernist critiques modernism, we'd say, yeah, go, cheer, yes. Because as a Christian, we realize these are, these are problems. But postmodernism it has its own set of problems. Another uh, leader in postmodern thought is Michael uh, Foucault, who was also had a problem with this this. Whole thing of a legitimate authority and uh, tyrannical abuse of power. He looked at prisons, jails, and asylums as symbols of the of, of uh, the the illegitimate use of power as a result of Western rationalism. So anything Western is considered evil. And I, as I keep saying, that's really a subtle attack on Christianity because what made Western history Western history, what made Western civilization Western civilization, was not uh, not the barbarians of Germany it wasn't the the Slavs and the Huns that came out of the steppes of Russia it wasn't the, uh, the, the mystical uh, Celts and their Druid worship it was the Christians who came along and transformed European history so all of this is simply an assault on uh, absolute truth and objective truth and the structures of authority that God has established so Foucault comes along and he he um, he is against all the prisons, jails, and asylums as the essence of power, tyranny in the West. But at the same time, he admires the regimes of Mao Zedong in China and the Ayatollah Khomeini. Those are his heroes. So you see this, this whole thing is uh, power becomes a major theme in understanding postmodernist power for pe- people who have been previously uh, marginalized. And there are two good watchwords that come out of postmodern, postmodern think we might say. Uh, empowerment. Anytime you're talking about empowerment, this group's empowered, that group's not empowered, this group's marginalized. That's that whole frame of thinking, that whole category of thinking is is postmodern. Another word that that I see is um, it, that comes out of postmodernism or as a result of it is issue. Have you ever noticed how the word issue has become? Um, Ever present. It's, it's omnipresent today, and it's this issue, and that person has issues, and this person has issues, and and have you solved your issues with that person? See, issue is a neutral, is a is a morally neutral word. Problem isn't. Problem implies that there's an absolute, that there's a wrong, that there's right and there's wrong. But issue is just one of those things where you're just going to uh, somehow resolve something, and you're not going to. Uh, uh, have, have to deal with something right or wrong. So these kinds of terminology reflect a shift in the way people think in our culture. They no longer think in terms of, of absolutes. They think completely in terms of relatives. So let's look a little bit more at postmodernism. First point has to do with some statistics. Full data. 60%, 66% of Americans believe that no such thing as absolute truth exists so we've gone over this enough to where everyone here knows that that is an internal that is an internally illogical statement that if you believe no absolute exists then is that an absolute so that's the basic problem is that post-modern, postmodernists are really hoist on their own petard Now, you'll have to go read Shakespeare to figure that out. See, I'm assuming you have some literary background. Sixty-six percent believe no such thing as absolute truth exists. That hoist on their own petard basically means they blow themselves up. Seventy-two percent of those between the ages of 18 and 25. Now, this study was done about eight years ago, so you can add a little bit to that, but... It's probably higher now for those between 18 and 25. 72% of those between 18 and 25 do not believe that any such thing as absolute truth exists. And 53% of evangelicals, these are people who uh, allegedly believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, 53% of evangelicals believe there are no absolutes. Not even Christ is an absolute. See, that's, that's cosmic thinking. That's worldliness in the church. They're thinking like the world. There are no absolutes. Not even Christ is an absolute. So this kind of thinking seeps in everywhere and affects every single one of us in, in extremely subtle ways. Now, we have to understand why it's called post um, postmodernism. Well, I've got a slot. Slide or two out of order here. Okay, modernism came along as a in the 1600s, early 1600s, and dominated Western culture up until the early 20th century. And then postmodernism is post means after. It's the kind of thinking that comes after modernism. And when you use terms like modernism and postmodernism, those are just kind of tags that. Uh, for, for an era that doesn't mean everybody who lived during that time thought as a modernist, and it doesn't have anything to do with right now. You know, right now is not in this thinking. Isn't modern? Modern is the thinking of of the seventeenth and eighteenth century or nineteenth century. And some people go, "Well, that's not modern." But you got to understand the terminology in terms of breaking down ages. I don't know what it's going to be after postmodern. Is it going to be post postmodern or neo post contemporary or, uh, or I, I don't know. But It starts with Descartes. Descartes develops rationalism, I think, therefore I am. And that's combined with the empirical thinking of of John Locke and others. And those two systems come together, basically emphasize that man can find truth on his own. They still believe there's something out there called truth and that man can find it. Man can come to ultimate answers on his own. One says it's by uh, pure reason alone. The other is uh, through experience and empiricism and the scientific method. But ultimately, both are weak, and they cannot provide ultimate answers. But that period is known as the Enlightenment. We don't need religion anymore. Religion was part of the Dark Ages, but now we, we, have, we believe in the ability of man, and so we're enlightened. Well, the the Enlightenment came to a crashing halt with the thinking of uh, Immanuel Kant. I'm having trouble. I transferred everything over this morning to this disk, and for some reason all of my fonts and everything changed colors on me once I got going. Immanuel Kant, do you have a little trouble reading the darker, hope it's not all that way, the darker print there, but Immanuel Kant brings in subjectivism. And with Kant... There's no longer belief that you can learn anything about this absolute. It changes. Intellectually, you can't get there anymore. Up to that point, every, they disagreed on what it was or how to get there, but they thought that somehow everybody could get there. But with Kant, nobody believes you can get there anymore. The result is skepticism... And philosophical existentialism, there's other consequences, but I'm trying to simplify this. Skepticism, you can't know truth anymore, so, so we can't really know. And skepticism, historically, I keep saying that skepticism always produces mysticism in the flow of history. Always goes from rationalism to skepticism to, empir- to uh, mysticism. Well, skepticism and existentialism dominate the 19th to the 20th centuries, and... Um, Really, the cover- period of modernism goes from about 1640 up to the beginning of the 20th century. There's certain overlap here. And postmodernism really finds its beginning in uh, 1900, early 20th century. It doesn't become popularized until the 60s. And um, everything that really happened during the 60s, the anti-authoritarianism, uh, all of that flowed out of a postmodern look at things. So that gives you kind of a historical perspective. Now, I keep talking about Kant, and I keep trying to explain his significance because he changes the way people look at reality. Up to that point, people thought there's an external reality that, that informs everything. Whatever it is, however they defined it, whether it's Plato's ideas... or or whatever it might be, or whether it's a a, a Christian God, or whatever it is, there's some universal that informs all the details of life, so that when when we talk about anything, we have some sort of commonality, some sort of belief in universals. So I'm going to chart it out like this. This is like a house. We're going to have a downstairs and an upstairs. The downstairs, we have a staircase that leads us upstairs. Downstairs, we have all the details of life, what, what Kant called... The phenomena, phenomenal. We have all the details of life, like people. People and observable phenomena all the things that we see, color, uh, science, all, of the, all the details of science. We have thoughts. Everybody's individual thoughts are all part of the You know your thoughts. Um, events. Language. This is important to understand postmodern because they do some really weird things with language. All of these are the details of life. But what gives meaning to this? What, what gives any kind of order? What, what pulls all this together in some kind of universals? Well, that's the upstairs of the house. And upstairs is the location of the universals and what Kant called the noumena. There you have absolutes. So that when you th- think about events and right or wrong, it's informed by something upstairs that's an absolute, that's a universal, that's true in all cases, in all cultures, at all times, anywhere. You have morals. Morals are located uh, upstairs. Uh, God is located upstairs. Whatever that God may be, some sort of universal being is located uh, upstairs. And ideas, the general universal ideas. And that's upstairs. And see, there's a staircase there. See, people believe that you could actually go upstairs and you could investigate universals. But when Kant came along, he said, you can't really know things as they are. You can only know things as you perceive them. So you hear people talk about, well, that's how you see it, but that's not how I see it. So all of a sudden what happens is with Kant, there's a brick wall there. And you can't get upstairs anymore. You hope there's an upstairs, but upstairs doesn't communicate downstairs because there's no way to get from upstairs to downstairs or from downstairs to upstairs now as christians we believe that god has spoken and he has communicated downstairs but for the non-christian and the non-christian thinker there's there's no communication anymore and the result is the upstairs just disappears so now all you're left with is details and this is what happens, is that people just focus on details. They focus on language. That's why I hated studying modern philosophy. As you get into things like Wittgenstein and, and linguistic analysis, all you do is you start breaking everything down into its, a statement, into all of its grammatical parts and syntactical parts, and somehow try to figure out some kind of meaning there, and you just focus on the microscopic. But there's no way to synthesize and come to universals in application anymore. Now, let me give you a little hint how that's affecting even commentaries. I've noticed that the commentaries on the Bible now get bigger and bigger and bigger. I was looking at, we're going to start 1 Corinthians after I finish Ruth in a few weeks, and I was looking at some commentaries on 1 Corinthians recently, and some of these are now $75, $80. I mean, we're talking about 1,400-page commentaries, and the detail in these commentaries is incredible. And sometimes they never really reach conclusions, especially the more liberal guys. They just throw out all this detail. This guy says this, and that guy says this, and this means that, this is that, and this is that, and this is the other thing. All the history and whatever, but there's no conclusions. There's no synthesis down into theology or doctrine or application. It's just information. And that's typical of of postmodernism. It's characterized by information, 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 but no knowledge or wisdom. And as I keep saying, information isn't knowledge and knowledge isn't wisdom. And what happens historically is, after Kant, people become became somewhat despondent intellectually because if there's no upstairs anymore, then we can't know God. We can't start man starting from man can't get anywhere. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know universals. He doesn't know absolutes. We to live, we have to believe in something like this. We have to believe there's a God. We have to believe there's hope. We have to believe that there's universals, that when I talk to you about a car, there's a universal notion of what car is, and you're going to understand me. We're both going to be talking about the same thing because there's some kind of universal idea of car. So we live and act as if there are real absolutes, that there's a upstairs that we can actually know, but intellectually we've been taught we can't know it anymore. And the result of that is that intellectuals just said there's no meaning anymore. There's no meaning in life, there's no God, and we're left in existential darkness and despair. And that gave rise to what's called existentialism, where the only way that you can have any meaning in life is for you as an individual to assert yourself in some way, whether it's walking a little old lady across the street in traffic or throwing the little old lady out into the traffic. Either way, it doesn't really matter as long as you as an individual assert yourself. So it produces hyper-individuality, and it produces hyper-nonconformity, and it all, but, but it also produces a level of despair because there's no real meaning. My meaning and your meaning are totally separate, so how can we have any kind of significant dis- discussion about any of this? Okay, that's, that's the background. Now, let's look at some comparison. We understand, therefore, that that we've shifted in this century from a modernistic view to a postmodern view. So let's do some comparison and contrast. We're going to look at four different areas, and we're going to compare what biblical Christianity says with what modernism and postmodernism say. Modernism, the modernist statement will be in white, and the postmodernist statement will be in yellow. First of all, let's talk about human nature, how you view man. In biblical Christianity, we believe that mankind was created in the image of God, that man is both spiritual, that is immaterial, and material. He has a soul. When he's regenerate, he has a human spirit, and he has a physical body. He is composed of material and immaterial components, and he is in the image of God even though that image is marred by sin. Now, the modernist the modernist believes that humans are simply material machines. There, there is no immaterial soul. So if you go to a secular psychologist who's not a Christian, then they're going to look at uh, why you do what you do totally in um, mechanistic terms. It's just genetic. It's just biochemical. You know, we're just going to treat your problems with... Uh, Prozac or or Zoloft or some other drug because it's not a result of something deeper more profound such as sin so the modernist views man as a material machine the universe is therefore purely physical just runs on itself and nothing exists beyond our own senses there's no god there are no angels no spirits nothing like that the postmodernist has no real opinion of human nature. But they're suspicious of any dogmatic assertions. Why? See, ultimately in postmodernism, there's no truth. There's no absolute truth. So anybody who comes along with any sort of uh, absolute, as any sort of dogmatic assertion is immediately suspect. So man's just whatever you want him to be. He can be one thing today. He can be something else tomorrow, or he can be both of those contradictory concepts today at the same time. Whatever you want it to be, as long as you're happy. Second category. Free will. Man's volition, responsibility, all tied together with his free will. In biblical Christianity, the will of man is diminished. His ability to live is diminished by sin we are born enslaved to the sin nature being enslaved is not a position of freedom we don't have free will in the sense that Adam had freedom but we're still morally responsible we are not um, fatalistically determined but in modernism man is completely independent and self-governing he's freewheeling he can do whatever he wants to wants to Because he's not a sinner. He's just a creature. There's no such thing as sin and good because those are moral categories. You can't know about moral categories. So moral categories don't apply to machines. Machines just do what they're designed to do. So men are autonomous and self-governing and they choose their own direction. What's really fun is to get into debates where you have two modernists debating whether or not man has free will. Postmodernists, people are products of their culture. See, with the modernists, you're, you're independent, you're autonomous, and, 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 and remember in existentialism I said the emphasis is on the individual. But in postmodernism, people are more group, everything's more group function, group oriented. People are products of their culture, and they only imagine they're self-governing. See, the fact that you think you make decisions is just a deception. You really don't. You're just, you're, all your actions are just determined by your group. You all are just a bunch of white, um, Western European extraction, uh, evangelical Christians. So you're going to think a certain way because of all that, not because you're independent, but you're, you're an you're, you're evangelical fundamentalist. So the emphasis is on groupthink and on, on figuring out what group you're in, and then you're immediately plugged into that group, and that's going to determine how you're going to act and how you're going to think. Third category. Their view of reason. Biblical Christianity, we recognize reason, both rationalism and empiricism are, are the use of, let's say, the use of reason, the use of logic, are necessary and legitimate. But they're not the ultimate basis for understanding reality. That comes from revelation. But revelation is, is, comes from a God who is rational. A God who creates language. A God who, remember what John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word was the logos, that means language, that means reason, that means thought. So, reason, thought, language are eternal for the Christian, and that what we have on earth as image bearers is simply a finite reflection of what God is. So, we see reason is necessary, logic is necessary, it discovers some truth, but ultimately revelation is needed to give a full understanding of that truth. In modernism... Rationalism and empiricism are independent. That's a key word. I left that out of the chart. Rationalism and empiricism are independent and the only basis for discovering truth. God does not speak. He's blocked out by that brick. He can't speak to man. In postmodernism, there's no objective reason at all. Rationalism is a myth. See, if everything we do is determined by the group we're in, then there's no real thought, is there? There's just reaction and that which is automatically produced by the group. So rationalism, reason, logic is just a myth. Logic is all determined by your group. It's uh, inherent within language, and that language reflects your culture. We're going to get into this again and again. And, uh, and so everything is just predetermined, so there is no absolute. You're just self-deception. And a fourth area of comparison is a view of progress. Christianity, we don't see man as progressing toward anything. That is in premillennial, dispensational Christianity. Mankind isn't progressing toward anything. Advances are positive. We have new inventions, new technology, which is wonderful. We have new treatments for diseases. Uh, All of these are positive and wonderful. But there is no utopia that can be brought in by man. It's not going to get better and better. There may be certain advances, certain improvements, but totally, it's, it's not totally getting better, or it's not getting better in its totality. Um, in modernism, mankind is progressing, because the ultimate hope is man. That's the highest there is. There is no God. Man's the, the uh, apex of the chain of being, so man, on the basis of his wonderful reason and knowledge, is going to bring in a utopic society. Well, after... Um, World War I and World War II, that really took a hit. And that's one reason postmodernism rejects modernism. They deny that there's any objective reason. And um, uh, that our, in postmodernism, man isn't advancing to anything. He's just going forward. That's a, another typo there. Okay, let's back up a minute. Point number three, there are three factors then in postmodernism. Three factors that characterize postmodernism. A is the collapse of the importance of religious belief. Whether you're Christian, non-Christian, whatever, in, in, in a pre-modernistic society, religious belief was foundational to everything. It still is, they just don't know it. Uh, but, but in terms of the way it's, it's played out on the part of everyday people, Religion was important. I mean, if you go back and you read what's talked about in terms of day-to-day conversations and what people did when they got together socially uh, 150, 200, 300 years ago, they talked about religion. They talked about what they believed. They talked about God. Now, nobody wants to talk about it, mostly because they're ignorant of it. But, but they don't talk about it. And if you do, nobody wants to talk about it because it may generate controversy. We're going to see why that's important in a minute. Why nobody wants to talk about anything religious because it is too um, uh, it's too personal now. So religious belief uh, collapses. There's no universal consensus of what's true anymore. In, in, in America, the whole thing broke down. That's one of the reasons why we don't want prayer in schools as a believer anymore. Up until World War II, we lived in a homogenous society. That means that 90 percent of Americans, almost 85 percent, are going to be. Uh, some form of Christian and, and, and even though you have more and more minorities coming in uh, you, you have blacks and you have Asians beginning to come in through immigration up until that point you have basically a homogenous society that is that the people are mostly Christian in one, one, one way or another one form or another but by the time you get to the end of World War Two. Society is broken down so much through immigration and the rejection of doctrine that you have very few people who even have an understanding of of what the Bible is anymore. heard a recent story about a class at uh, uh, at a Christian college. Students were asked if they would define what, if anyone knew what the Rock of Ages was. Of course, most of you know it's a hymn. Nobody in the class knew it was a hymn. They didn't know it was a title for Christ. Somebody said maybe it was a deaf leopard song. <laughs> See, we live in an age of biblical illiteracy. People who have grown up in church don't know the Bible anymore. They don't know, they don't know doctrine or, or theology anymore. And so uh, what we recognize is we live in a time when, when religious beliefs, the, the, the marketplace of religious beliefs is in free fall. You know, like when the Dow Jones goes from 10,000 to 8,000 in a day. I mean, in terms of the marketplace of ideas, religious beliefs have gone from 10,000 to zero in the last 50 years. And and, and when c- the culture has thrown off this, this uh, homogeneity, now we live in a heterogi- heter- heterogeneous society with all kinds of beliefs. And so you can't come along and do the kinds of things that we could do Prior to World War II, like have prayer in the schools because you have people in that classroom who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds, and um, they may be Buddhist, they may be Muslim, they may be uh, atheist, uh, who knows, they may be New Agers, who knows what it is. So, how are you going to make these people, how are you going to create a prayer and force all these people to pray the same prayer? Well, you can't. We, don't, we live in a different world than we lived at one time. After World War II, people became more and more aware of all the different beliefs in the world. This is the second factor, which is globalism. After World War II, we expanded, uh, had expanded communication, expanded travel. All world views on the earth became familiar with all the other worldviews, and so everybody's claiming to have truth. And in the cacophony of, of truth claims, people say, well, nobody can know truth, so I'm just going to do whatever I think is right, whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes my life work and that's what you have you have people who present the gospel in terms of uh, Jesus works for me he'll work for you too well Jesus may not work for them so they'll go try Buddha but, but it's whatever works for them and so it's done on this purely subjective basis and so as As truth breaks down, what happens is the third factor is you get fragmentation and polarization in society. Everything starts fragmenting and falling apart and going in different directions because everybody's opposed to everybody else. And that's what's generated the culture wars that we've been having for the last 20 years in in our society. Wars over morality, wars over ethics, wars over what's taught in schools, wars over textbook content. All of this is part of culture wars. Movies, you know, like right now we have all the uh, hoopla going on about uh, the Harry Potter movie, before that it's Star Wars, because there's always some sort of religious overtones to these things, even though people living in a secular society don't think there are. There, there really are, but, but we all live in our own little reality, so we can interpret it any way we want to. So those are three factors that characterize postmodern society, the collapse of importance of religious belief. It's no longer central to anything, so we really don't want to talk about it. You know, people get together socially, they always think, well, you don't talk about politics or religion. Okay, so we're going to bore each other to death. The collapse of the importance of religious belief, secondly, globalism. And, uh, the influence of becoming aware of all the other worldviews and then fragmentation and polarization. Well, that brings us to the fourth point. Fourth point is that Christianity teaches that truth is objective and can be known. Christianity teaches that objective, that truth is objective and can be known. And postmodernism teaches that human beings make up their own reality. They make up their own reality. Whatever's real for you, which may be different from what's real for me, but it doesn't matter. There's no real anymore. So whatever you think, and so therefore, multiple realities are equally true, and they're true at the same time. That's why you can get Christians today who are who are into uh, transcendental meditation and Christianity and maybe a little Zen. Um, all at the same time because it's whatever works for them. And, there's, and we would look at that and say, well, that's all irrational and logical, but see, for them, there's no such categories as irrational and logical. Uh, fifth point. Fifth point is that in postmodernism is more than relativism. It's more than relativism. In postmodernism... Meaning is created by the social group and its language. For example, previously in in existentialism, uh, the emphasis was on the individual. As I said earlier, he's alone, he's a nonconformist, he uh, finds meaning through the exercise of his own will. But in postmodernism, postmodernism goes beyond simple relativism. It emphasizes the fact that meaning or absolutes are created by the social group, whatever that is. You're evangelical Christian, so you're plugged into that group. Maybe it's African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, poor people. Whatever it is, that's that social group, that social milieu out of which somebody comes, and that's the basis for meaning. And those social groups, whether it's Chinese, whether it's Indian, whether it's... Arabic, whether it's Jewish or Western American or African, uh, those social groups all have uh, language, and that language shapes meaning. In postmodernism, there's a stress on um, there's a stress on social identity, groupthink, and everybody in the group has to basically follow the same fashion trends. So it's very conformist, as opposed to the nonconformity that uh, characterized. Are uh, allegedly characterized as the 60s generation. I always loved it back in the 60s when everybody was growing their hair long and screaming that they were going to be nonconformists. A week before I, uh, before I, and everybody was a nonconformist by growing their hair long, so a week before I graduated from high school, I got a flat top. I caught all kinds of grief from everybody because I wasn't conforming to their version of nonconformity. <laughs> See that's part of postmodernism. Everybody's going to non-unconform or non-be a nonconformist in the same way. And in postmodernism, what happens is liberation comes, true freedom comes from rejecting traditional power structures. But really, what they're doing is they're just putting another power structure in place. But they want to—they now want to empower whoever they view has been marginalized. So if you're if you're black or Hispanic or Asian and you're poor, then you've been, or a woman, then you've been marginalized uh, by their view, which is uh, that, that Western European uh, male-centered, Euro-centered thought has marginalized these other groups. And now we're going to put them in power, and we're going to dump on white males. That's where this comes from. It's a completely uh, uh, reversal of the way uh, people who think logically would think. You see, for the, for the postmodernists, postmodernists, they, they think any kind of objective system. See, we as, as a doctrinal church, as a categorical church, we believe in systems. You know, we believe, just think about this. Some, some of you guys work with computers. Computers are all based on systems. And everything's organized and categorical. Everything in life is that way. That's how God designed it. You go back and read Genesis one. everything's systematized and categorized in its six days of creation. So we're just extrapolating that, living within the reality of God's world. But for the postmodernists, any kind of a system is bad or evil. That's why doctrinal churches do not attract a lot of people today. is because the person coming in off the street is thinking irrationally and non-systematically, and he comes into an environment where he's expected to think systematically and rationally. And what happens in the church growth movement is that they're compromising with the people who are coming in in order to make it more comfortable for them and they're throwing out their rationality and they're appealing to the more mystical, emotional, non-rational uh, element they're coming in so that they can attract them and to me that's a shell game you know it's a con game what you're doing is you're—it's a bait and switch tactic we're going to uh, bait you with irrational something appeals to your emotion and then try once we get you in the door switch you over to, to, to something rational and uh, it doesn't work, and they end up having nothing more than churches that glorify uh, emotion and never get very far in terms of really teaching teaching any any doctrine, not as we understand it. So uh, uh, postmodernism is antagonistic to any kind of objective thinking. And they call this, these objective systems, they call stories or narratives. And those stories are different from culture to culture, group to group, and they control how you think, so you're not... Free. You're controlled. Your thinking's controlled by these cultural narratives, and for them, truth is just a fiction. So every every narrative group has its own fictions, and truth, therefore, is just a construction. That's a key word. It's just a construction of language. And therefore, to get past anything, you have to deconstruct the language. That's why one of the key elements and key words you see is deconstructionism. You have to go in, and after you read Plato, you have to deconstruct him. After you read the Bible, you have to deconstruct it, because it's written by people who are just, the language that's there was just shaped by their culture. And as soon as you start saying that, then everything there becomes rather fluid, and you can make it mean whatever you want to, because it's basically an attack on truth claims. So postmodernism rejects all truth claims and, and all narratives as illegitimate and unnecessary. Frameworks are bad. Systems are bad. And so we would say this is an inherent attack on doctrine, on systematic theology, and on thinking itself. Sixth point. For postmodernists, it's impossible to know God, history, or reason. History is no longer the, the objective recording of events that took place. History is now something that's malleable. You know, everybody has a different view of history. It just depends on what your view is, and we're just going to shape it and shift it to make it fit whatever agenda we have. Reason is uh, is hopeless, it doesn't go anywhere, and who knows whether or not God exists. That's just another absolute. So it's impossible to know God, history, or reason. Furthermore, point seven, it's impossible to communicate truth for the postmodernists because language shapes what you think. To communicate, you have to have language. Language shapes what you think, and language is just a cultural creation. You know the, the Germans have one language we have another language uh, the, uh, Mex- in Mexico they speak Spanish we may talk about a dog and use the word dog or, or canine they use the word petal and each word has a different nuance to it from a different language so, so how can you have any kind of truth when even from language to language there are, there are these variations that just reflect their cultural perception so, so how can you talk about universals anymore um For the postmodernist, language can only communicate perceptions. And those perceptions are the perceptions of that culture or that group and not absolutes. Therefore, meaning in language is just a cultural creation. Therefore, meaning becomes totally fluid now. And this leads to the eighth point, which is a little more complex. See, I'm building this slowly for you. I know this isn't easy. You'll probably need to listen to the tape a hundred times. Or get the book I recommended. Uh, since there are no absolutes behind language, then each person becomes trapped and imprisoned by their own language, or culture, or group. You can't know what's outside the language because you see you're trapped by this language and that culture or the group. So if you're in a male-dominated Eurocentric background, then you're imprisoned if you're not male, white, or uh, or European background. So each person then is imprisoned by their own language, culture, or group that seeks to marginalize uh, those that don't fit the main group. And uh, they would give the following example. For example, they'd say just to talk about man, you're automatically excluding woman. So therefore, whenever you use the word woman, first thing that you ought to realize is you're excluding, you've been excluded by men. And therefore, the very term woman talks about the fact that, that women have been excluded uh, Uh, abused and just the use of the term woman indicates that they have been uh, marginalized and they need to be returned to a position of power so that's the kind of funny games that they use in relationship to language and it's reminiscent of a passage in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass the Queen, Queen of Hearts engages Alice in a dialogue and asks her how old are you and Alice responds I'm seven and a half exactly "'You needn't say exactly,' the queen remarked. "'I can believe it without that. "'Now, I'll give you something to believe. "'I'm just one hundred and one, five months and a day.' "'I can't believe that,' said Alice. "'Can't you?' the queen said. "'In a pitying tone, try again. "'Draw a long breath. Shut your eyes.' "'Alice laughed. "'There's no use trying,' she said. "'One can't believe impossible things.' "'I dare say you haven't much practice,' said the queen.' When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. See, that's the postmodernists. They just believe whatever because it doesn't have to be rational or possible. Lewis Carroll was quite a philosopher. He also wrote quite a thick book on symbolic logic. And he understood where the times were headed. Now, what are some results? Point number eight was, since there are no absolutes behind language, people are imprisoned by their language and culture. Now, seven, what are some results? First of all, moral moral principles that anchor decisions, moral principles that give us a foundation for handling chaos, crisis, moral principles or absolutes that give us a frame of reference for facing any kind of personal adversity evaporate. So now there's, there's no basis for any kind of stability in terms of crisis. And you see that today after the events of September 11th. So many people are afraid to fly, afraid to travel, afraid to go out. If you're a Christian, you ought to be shamed. God's in control. You're going to die the same time, place, and manner. Now that you were before September 11th, it's still in the hands of God. God is still the one in control, and uh, you just have to trust God. If you're not trusting God, then you're saying, uh, Osama bin Laden, you win. And that's being a traitor. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But when you don't have absolutes and a culture that believes in absolutes, then in a crisis, moral principles and any kind of guide evaporates. Second result. People become valued for only what they can contribute to me, to my happiness. You know, not because you're valuable because of who and what you are created in the image of God, though you've made bad decisions, though you may be unattractive, though you may be a criminal, whatever you might be, um, you're still valuable because you're in the image and likeness of God. But now people are valued only for what they can contribute to, to me. Third impact is that personal pleasure now becomes the ultimate criteria. You notice this, you ask people, somebody's going through a difficult time and maybe they've been married for two or three years, you say, "Well, are you happy? What's the implication? If you're not happy, get out. See, happy's the criteria. You've got a job. How's it been going? Are you happy? No, that's not the criteria. Can you glorify God in the midst of that situation and are you obeying God? If you're making happiness your ultimate criteria, then happiness is nothing more than self-absorption and the fact that you're self-absorbed and you're fulfilling your self-absorbed desires. Happiness isn't the ultimate goal in life. Happiness is the byproduct of living a life to the glory of God where you're advancing to your spiritual maturity. And if you're not doing that, you'll never be happy. And so postmodern. for, For the postmodern, the ultimate criteria is personal pleasure and happiness. We see the consequences in the judicial system where judges use creative rationalizations in order to overturn centuries of case law, in order to create new laws to fit their own social agenda. We see it with journalists who have no concept of absolute truth, That's not true of all journalists, but for those who have no concept of absolute truth, they write biased news reports which promote their own agenda because whatever happened has no absolute reality. You can shape it any way you want to. And we see it with teachers in the educational system, since they have no objective truth to communicate. They just focus on the process and on experiences, not on knowledge, not on Knowledge. I, I just love the commercial I've heard run. I forget what it's a commercial for. One of the uh, teaching aides, and it's a real uh, uh, slam on the modern, postmodern education, it says, Oh, Jimmy, it's creative math. What's 2 plus 2? 8. Oh, you're so good. That was so smart. Okay, Jimmy, what's 5 minus 2? 27. Oh, you're just so, cre- you're just doing so well. You're going to get a reward. You get to go out and play. But that happens, in, that, that's an over dramatization, but that's the emphasis is on process. The emphasis is on giving the student experiences as opposed to uh, learning uh, and acquiring a knowledge base. Because postmodernism is ultimately anti-rational and anti-knowledge. Point eight, all knowledge, as a critique, all knowledge and all language depend on the validity of logic. See, the problem is they attack language as being able to communicate meaning, but they attack language with language. So how can they mean what they think they mean? See, how can when they say that language, does, language communicates a restricted meaning, they've used language and they're communicating a restricted meaning. How do they know they're not just socially bound by their social construct? Let's deconstruct the deconstructionists. See, it's an irrational position, but see, because once you reject rationality, irrational, irrationality is no longer a problem. Point number nine. When the rational is replaced by the aesthetic, then we believe what we like. We believe whatever appeals to us. It just becomes a matter of personal taste and personal pleasure. I believe Christianity, because that appeals to me. You can be a Buddhist. That appeals to you. You can be a radical Islamic fundamentalist and and, uh, murder people, and that's fine, because that's what appeals to you. That's where postmodernism goes. That's why you end up with certain celebrities who have such a difficult time expressing any kind of hostility towards the people who attack the World Trade Center, is because... Uh, Well, if they're going to be consistent, then then what those people did is just as important, and just as important to them as whatever it is that they do. They have no absolute to go to in order to help interpret and understand the events of of September 11th. Now, let's bring it home. According to this criterion or this canon of postmodernism, belief is just belief is based on just what appeals to you and what is personally pleasurable. That means belief is a deeply personal preference. So, whenever you critique that belief, then you're critiquing the person. And it's taken as a personal insult and challenge and a personal attack. People become. You can't sit around and talk about religion anymore because religion is just my personal taste. And if you are attacking my religious ideas, just critiquing them logically, then you're attacking me as a person and I resent that. And so you can no longer take ideas, whether they're religious ideas or political ideas. And for the postmodernists, you can't put them out on the table for rational discourse because they're now just personal pleasure and personal preference. And I can't, I can't critique your religious beliefs any more than I can critique the fact that you like chocolate. You like dark chocolate rather than white chocolate. And so religion just becomes a matter of personal preference and everybody has their own personal preferences. Tenth, we live in a society that goes into information overload, but they never derive any universal principles from that information. And you just get bombarded with facts, facts, this, that, the other thing, and nobody ever draws any universals or any principles from all that information. And then the eleventh is that it provides a rationalization for the sin nature. All this just gives another way to rationalize our own uh, sinful proclivities. And this is what John says in 1 John 2.16. He says, for all that is in the world, what? The lust of the flesh. See, what follows, you have this phrase in 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, then you have an appositional phrase describing what's in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. See, the cosmic system provides the rationale and the justification for doing whatever, excuse me, provides the justification and the rationale for doing whatever you want to do. The lust of the sin nature, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We have to remember as believers what James says in James three thirteen through 15. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Why? This wisdom, that is, the the, uh, mental attitude sins and that way of living, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. In other words, human viewpoint thinking, worldly thinking, is ultimately the thinking of Satan. It's arrogant and it's hostile to God. It emphasizes man's independence and that he doesn't need God. But the solution is in Romans 12.2 we are not to be conformed to this world we're not to have our thinking conformed to the thinking of this world whether it's modernism or postmodernism but we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, that you don't do that 1 hour on sunday you don't do that a couple of times a week you do that on a day to day basis because we have been indoctrinated with postmodern thinking from the grave, and you don't get rid of that just by a a band-aid here and a stitch there. There has to be a complete renovation of the thinking, and that means that doctrine has to be the number one priority over and over and over again in order to give us the tools we need in the battle. We are to take every thought captive, Paul says. Every thought. That means Christian life is a thinking battle. And we have to have the tools to think, and that comes from the Word of God. We are not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our thinking so that we can demonstrate in our lives that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to get greater insight into the culture around us and how it thinks as cosmic thinking because we know that too often we have picked up those same ideas, those same approaches that they affect us. And perhaps by understanding a little more clearly what has affected us, we can uh, see it, root it out, and replace it with the absolute truth of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that we are all born sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for sin. Scripture says God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Therefore, the issue is, what are you trusting for salvation? Is it Jesus Christ, or your own good works, or good deeds, or pleasant personality? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right now, right where you sit, you can make your salvation and your eternal destiny sure and certain. All you need to do is accept God's free gift in Jesus Christ. You just believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day, and you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, that you would help us to concentrate on them and to uh, understand them that we may see how they impact our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.